This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Keely. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Heard It on the Sidelines. Heard It. Heard It on the Sideline with Shotgun Spratly. Spratly. Welcome to another edition of the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast with Shotgun Spratling, part of the Peristyle podcast family. That's right. We're back with a second episode in less than 24 hours. And if you haven't yet, make sure you check out last night's episode where we talked to 24-7 sports national recruiting analyst Brandon Jenkins and ESPN Plus college basketball analyst Martin Bahar about USC basketball and the Trojans signing the number one player in the 2023 men's and women's recruiting classes. They provide some great insight that I think you guys will really appreciate. But before I hop on a plane to get out for the Crosstown Showdown, USC, UCLA, blue jerseys, red jerseys, it's going to be great. I wanted to get one more episode in, though. Today, I'm going to be answering your guys' questions with a particular focus on the things I've been seeing while studying USC's last couple of games and compiling the participation charts, the formation breakdowns that I produce after every game for you guys so you can see who's playing, how much they're playing, what trends may be forming. Before I get to your questions, let's jump into some of the differences, the intricacies, maybe even some irregularities that I noticed after putting together this week's participation charts. Let's start with the big tear-down-the-cheek moment of Travis Dye going down with a significant leg injury. What a what a moment in the stadium, just seeing everyone come around him and and uh, you know, just his teammates being being there for him was really touching to see. But and shows you the dynamic of Travis Dye in this with this team in just 10 or 11 months uh, of being around the program uh, and, and the impact that he's had in that time. But the loss of Travis Dye, what happens now? So Austin Jones is, is going to take over for USC. He came in on the next 18 offensive snaps and on 25 of the 29 snaps before the fourth quarter when USC went to kind of garbage time. They put in the backups and got them some opportunities there. So it's going to be Austin Jones. He's going to be the primary guy. He's going to be number one. There's not going to be 1A, 1B with Relic Brown, I don't think, going forward. We'll see, and maybe Relic gets a different package going forward. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much, uh, if he is involved in just a normal rotation, if there are certain set plays, because he's a freshman, you always you know you wonder how much you, you you can put on their plate as you go in. But it was interesting to see that Darwin Barlow came in and he flashed. Will that lend lend to him getting some more opportunities going forward? He's a guy that we've always been very impressed by when he gets his opportunities, just hasn't gotten them this season. So is he possibly going to get more in the rotation? And you give Relic a certain amount of plays uh, each week that you really want him to focus on, and then Austin Jones kind of takes the heavy load. That'll be kind of interesting to see. Now, there was an interesting thing that happened after Travis Dye goes out. You know, that happened in the, the second quarter. As USC comes out after halftime, they removed Austin Jones. They removed Relic Brown from all special teams, but they only did it for a brief moment. It was kind of interesting, you know, they kind of took him off the kickoff return, the first one of those that they had. And I think there was one other, uh, you know, uh, set of plays where those guys weren't in there. 
But Austin Jones has been a big, a big guy on special teams. He rotates in on the kickoff coverage every every time. He's on the punt coverage unit, I believe it is. So he's on a couple of different ones. He gets a, a decent amount of snaps each week on special teams. So it'll be interesting to see, okay, do they fill that in with Darwin Barlow? He took over the snaps later in the game where uh, for Austin Jones on the kickoffs and stuff. So you know he's been on kickoff coverage earlier in the season. We'll see if if he takes over that role or if he does some more stuff uh, with special teams going forward. That'll be something to keep an eye on. Or does USC try to take all those running backs off the special teams because, hey, we don't want to get a guy banged up on special teams and now be down to two scholarship running backs. So that'll be something interesting there. Relique Brown did – he came out for one kickoff return and then went back in. So I don't know if they realize, hey, we got to get the ball in his hands, got to find a way to do that. Austin Jones for the season has been on seven kickoff snaps per game. So that's a decent amount there um, as someone who's kind of rotating in at some different positions. So we'll see what they do with the running backs on special teams as well. But the big thing is when you lose Travis Dye, it's how much he's played this season. He's played 59% of the snaps this season. But what plays is he specifically in on? third down and fourth down before his injury he was in on 70.5 percent of every third or fourth down snap for usc so they've really trusted him particularly on third and one he he was in on all 16 third and one snaps so far this season um and he was in on three of the four fourth and one plays so austin jones came in on one of those so you know he's been the guy for them when they get in a third and one situation, do they feel comfortable with Austin Jones? Do they feel comfortable with Lee Brown or, or Darwin Barlow in there? That'll be something to see the play calling going forward where they felt like we'll give the ball to Travis Dye. He'll burrow his way forward. He'll fall forward and get that first down almost every single time. Um, and they trusted him on third and longs to be able to in the pass protection. So 70.5% of the third and fourth down snaps, that's going to be the big area that I will be keeping an eye on going forward with what running backs are in there and how they try to use those running backs. Do they spread them out? We saw in this game USC spread out the uh, the Colorado defense a little bit more. Did that a little bit more actually against Cal, uh, the most they've done all season where they split out the wide – you know, had four wide receivers on the field, split out the running back as well. We saw that a little bit with Raleigh Brown playing on the very outside. Obviously he has those wide receiver skills. So there's some different options that they can do going forward, but that's something definitely to keep an eye on is what's happening with the running back position on third and fourth downs going forward. Now, Austin Jones, he mixes in on the kickoff coverage with Jalen Smith. It's an interesting kind of pairing, but those two guys had the same spot on the kickoff coverage every time. You know, they rotate in and out. But Jalen Smith left this game. He played a season-low 13 snaps. No one really noticed, but he left early in the second half after a kickoff coverage where he seemed to kind of tweak a hamstring. He was kind of grabbing at the back of his leg as he was walking off the field and didn't come back in the game. Well, he wasn't the only nickelback USC lost. Now, Jalen Smith has kind of has fallen down the depth chart the last couple of weeks as Bryson Shaw has kind of taken over one of those safety spots and Max Williams moved to nickelback. Well, then Max Williams goes out early in this game, looked to suffer a head injury, maybe a concussion, something there, um, when he takes a big hit trying to make a tackle. So USC loses two nickelbacks in this game. So what happens? Well, they bring Latrell McCutcheon in. He plays a season-high 58 snaps after setting a season-high 
each of the last two weeks too. So I think it's interesting to see Latrell McCutcheon is kind of coming along a little bit. You know, he hasn't played too much as the season uh, got in the middle of the season. He started out playing 20 or so snaps per game in the beginning of the year, the first three games, but then the next four games did not play very much at all. You know, he played about 10 snaps per game. Now it's back up over 30, 40. He played 31 against Arizona, 44 against Cal, 58 against Colorado, and that's a you know a new season high for him, a new USC high for him. So does Latrell McCutcheon continue to get opportunities, or do we see Max Williams, Jalen Smith, are they healthy enough to get back in there? And who's going to be the ones to make plays? You know, Lincoln Riley was asked about the Nickelbacks this week, and he said that's one of the areas where we need to get we need to have guys being more than just in the right spot. They got to go make plays. They got to be playmakers. We saw Max Williams make some plays early in the season. Jalen Smith has had some big tackles, but they're looking for more out of that nickelback spot. So that's one to keep an eye on going forward, both with the injuries and the fact that there just hasn't been a ton of plays being made from the nickelback spot in the last few weeks. Another position where maybe you could say there hasn't been enough plays being made has been the X receiver as the season has progressed. You know, it's been Brendan Rice has started each game at that spot, and you had Kyle Ford. We've seen both those guys make plays at times. Haven't had necessarily the huge breakout game. Did see Kyle Ford get his first 100-yard game. I thought Brendan Rice looked really good after the first drive or two, after the first quarter where the entire offense looked bad against Colorado. I thought he looked really good. A couple really nice hands catches. The one on the sideline was spectacular. The one moving across the field to catch it, you know, below at his shins and then keep running. I thought that was a really nice catch right there. Obviously, he had the touchdown as well. There's been a lot of complaints about him on our message boards and whatnot, uh, but I don't think people have noticed he's seen a decline in his snaps the last two weeks. You know, he averaged 45 snaps over the first set, uh, over seven games prior to the last two games when he's had 30 snaps and 32 snaps on the offensive side. So that tells you that, you know, someone like, uh, Kyle Ford is getting more opportunities, and Kyle Ford has taken advantage of them at times. At the same time that Brendan Rice has seen his his snap counts de- decline, Kyle Ford's gone from playing 69 offensive snaps total in the first seven games of the season, so less than 10 snaps a game, to 36 snaps per game the last three weeks, the last three games. So you're seeing him get some more and more opportunities. He's actually played more than Brendan Rice, even though he hasn't started the last two weeks. And Kyle Ford played a career-high 43 total snaps against Colorado. Another backup that earned some extra snaps this past week was Corey Foreman. Corey Foreman getting there. He got kept in on multiple drives. You know, where they USC gets the the safety on one drive. Well, the next drive, he's back in there. USC gets forces the fumble to Lutu Pelotu. Corey Foreman was on the field for that. He stays out there the next time. That hasn't been the case this season. He hasn't been a guy who's carried over from one drive to the next drive. It's been okay. We got him in there for a couple snaps to relieve the starter. Now we're going back to the starter. That wasn't the case. It was pretty evenly distributed, uh, the three the snaps among three different guys at that rush-in position. Nick Figueroa only played 14 snaps. Now, maybe you say, hey, it's Colorado. They didn't need to use him. They wanted to get Corey Foreman some opportunities out there. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that, that Nick Figueroa, since moving to that rush-in position you know, in the Utah game, he played 60 snaps, 60 defensive snaps. And then he's declined each of the – 
four week or three games since then. You know, he had 37 defensive snaps against Arizona, 32 against Cal, only 14 against Colorado, and 14. That's right around where he was playing. Uh, you know, he had a couple games where he played a lot early in the season, but there were you know four games early in the first half of the season where he didn't really get a ton of snaps. He played 10 against uh, Oregon State, against Arizona State. 14 against Washington State, 16 against Rice, so not a ton of snaps there. So I'm curious to see what his snap count will be going into this UCLA game. Is he back starting again? Is that roll up for grabs this week? That'll be an interesting one to keep an eye on. Solomon Bird, the other guy in that mix, had 24 snaps, but don't really remember him making any impact plays there, whereas Corey Foreman did have those couple of nice plays, the big tackle for loss, getting into the backfield, and that's great for his confidence. And I thought it was really interesting, of all the things to do with that rush-in position, is what happened when USC came out for the second half. Who was starting to start the second half? Corey Foreman. Now, he played the first three snaps, and then they went to Solomon Bird. So they didn't go back to Nick Figueroa until the second drive. So that's kind of interesting there where they flip-flopped Corey Foreman and uh, Nick Figueroa as far as, you know, one versus two versus three on there. So keep an eye on the rush-in position. Do we see more zero out there? Do we see do we see the first number on the roster, zero? Or do we see the last number on the roster, 99? Or the one right in the middle, 51, with Solomon Bird? Just kind of interesting how that plays out there. But keep an eye on those guys going forward as well. Speaking of getting to the quarterback, attacking the quarterback, one of the interesting things that USC's done the last few games, and part of it is because of the injuries they've had at that that inside linebacker position, but we've kind of seen a we've kind of seen a roaming Tuli Tuli Pelotu. There's been times where he just kind of starts out standing beside the inside linebacker, whether it be Shane Lee, whether it be Raylan Goforth, to Asim Nomura, and then he kind of creeps towards the line of scrimmage and attacks different gaps at different times. So the idea there is to keep the offensive line guessing where your best pass rusher is going to come from. It's not that he's playing inside linebacker. He's not dropping in coverage a ton from there. He's not dro- not dropping in coverage at all when he's standing up like that. He's always pass rushing in those situations. But how successful has it been? So in the last three games, they started against Arizona. They did 11 times with Thule against Arizona, and it didn't work at all. They gave up 179 yards on those 11 snaps, and there were multiple big, big explosive plays for the Wildcats in that, uh, including a 34-yarder, a 23-yarder, so a couple of you know big explosive plays there. But what about against Cal and Colorado? Maybe that was just hey, an adjustment period of where you learned from a first time trying something, and then you, you make some adjustments to it, and how's it worked since then? Would USC has used kind of the roaming Thule? 15 snaps against Cal and Colorado, and they've given up only 20 yards on those 15 snaps. So look to see if that's something they continue to do. Now that they do have Shane Lee healthy, they do have Raylan Goforth, they do have Tua Nomura, and potentially the return of Eric Gentry uh, this week. If they have all four of those inside linebackers, do we still see Thule standing up and kind of picking and choosing where he's going to rush from? Or do they put him back on the the end? Do they put him moving back inside on the interior, try to move him around in different ways other than what they've been doing with the Roman Tule? They've also done that with Solomon Tule Alapupu, who's the primary backup behind uh, Tui Pelotu. And they it was very similar as far as the results. You know, they gave up nearly 10 yards per play versus Arizona. I think it was uh, five snaps there. They've only done it one snap since then when, when Solomon's been in there, and it went for zero yards against Colorado. So just something to keep an eye on. If you see Thule not on the line of scrimmage, you know, how do they use him against UCLA to try to get him, 
you know, you want to get him in a one-on-one matchup and try to get some advantages for your defensive line, especially with the way that UCLA can run the ball. You've got to be able to shut down the run, and that includes getting Thule in opportunities where he can make one defender or one offensive lineman uh, clear somebody out of the way and then go make a tackle. Finally, against Colorado, USC was able to get the reserves some time. How about it? It's about time that you got those guys an opportunity. And that meant, you know, we saw Miller Moss get some opportunities in there. Two drives, two touchdowns. Great job by Miller coming in. Only had to throw a couple of swing passes, a couple of short passes, but helped move the sticks even when some things broke down uh, in, in on the drives and they lost some yards with a fumble and some different things like that. But we also saw C.J. Williams get his, his season-high snaps. We saw some other guys getting some opportunities that haven't gotten a, a ton of reps previously. Uh, we saw Rajon Davis get in there for a handful of snaps at the very end of the game. Uh, we saw some of the other reserve defenders get their you know, backup defenders get some extended time. Uh, Jacoby Covington saw him and Latrell McCutcheon, which we talked about. He was in there the whole time. Zamarian Gordon. So a couple of those guys. Now, USC didn't change up their front at all. They kept in the normal rotation in the front, you know, uh, five, six guys. So I thought that was interesting outside of Rajon getting in the last drive for four snaps. Uh, so that was kind of interesting that they didn't try to put anybody else in. We saw some season debuts. We saw season debuts from Jason Rodriguez and Kobe Pepe, two linemen. Um, and the first time either of those guys has played since 2020, actually, since the Washington State game in 2020, they both played in that game. Yeah, uh, you know, both of them have had some injuries that have kept them out. So good to see those guys get back out there. You know, want to see guys healthy and continue to progress in their careers. And speaking of careers, how about career debuts for Devin Tompkins, the out the edge rusher for USC from the Bay Area? He got in for a couple of snaps at the very end of the game, as well as Andres to work the office alignment. He was on the final extra point uh, opportunity with. AJ Maggio and uh, Caden Stefan and a couple other guys on there that normally don't get a lot of playing time, but always good to get in the game. You want to be able to say that you were out in the field and played some. We also saw freshman cornerback Fabian Ross make his career debut against Cal on the kickoff coverage unit and, you know, kind of took over that role against Colorado as well. So he played a season high or career high uh, for the Colorado game. We'll see if they use him. Uh, this week against U- UCLA and Notre Dame, or how they kind of use his final two games that he has remaining, because I'm sure they're not going to want to uh, burn his red shirt for just keeping him on kickoff coverage there. We did see Damani Jackson dressed, but he did not play. Of every other scholarship player, and you know Damani Jackson obviously coming back from injury, so that was probably played into it. They want to probably wait until he's healthy enough to where if they do put him out there, because if we don't have to burn the red shirt, don't burn it. If you, you do put him out there, you want to put him out there for a significant amount of plays potentially. And when he's in, you know, the flow of the defense rather than just some garbage time or rather than just some special teams. So uh, if he gets in, I wouldn't be surprised to see him against UCLA or Notre Dame or down the stretch in, you know, a Pac 12 championship or postseason play. But uh, if they don't have to and if he's not 100%, then I don't think they're going to put throw him in there for just, you know, four or five snaps uh, when they can potentially still redshirt him, even if, if that ends up being the case. So the only scholarship player that was not injured or coming off injury, at least that we know of, that's played in a game this season that didn't get in the game, was Julian Simon, the the linebacker that's been moved to rush, been moved all around the place a couple of times. I just thought that was interesting that he was the only guy that did, that's played earlier this season but didn't get in the mix. So I don't know if there there's something, a nagging injury there or whatnot. He was dressing on the sideline. So uh, you, ne- you never know with USC, the fact that they're very secretive about the injuries now, that maybe he had something where they didn't want to throw him in there. But he was the only guy that did not play in this game that has played earlier in the season. 
Speaking of a couple injuries, we did see Xavier Alford. We did see Joshua Jackson. Those guys have been MIA for a little while, so it's good to see that they are still on the team and still, you know, with the group. They were not dressed or anything for the game, but you know, there those are a couple guys. There's a couple more guys that you know have played in the past, but we haven't seen yet this season, and that includes, uh, you know, Jude Wolf, who's obviously we know his injury, but Adonis Ote, Britton Allen, and Colin Mobley, the defensive lineman. Those three guys. You know, we've seen in and out of uniform. We've seen them dressed at times. We've seen them, you know, not have their pads on at different times. Britton Allen did have his pads on. Uh, I believe he had on the, I believe Adonis Ote had his pads on this week, but Britton Allen did not. So, you know, those guys have been back and forth, but have not played any games this season. So USC right now has with Kobe Pepe and Jason Rodriguez playing USC has six returners that have played in games previously prior to the season that have not played in games so far this season. Jude Wolf, Josh Jackson, Xavier Alford, Adonis Ote, Britton Allen, and Colin Mobley. A couple of interesting things the last couple of weeks, actually, has been the nickel versus dime. How much is USC using nickel? How much are they using dime? You know, it, it's interesting that they decided, and this is mostly because of you know, Eric Gentry going out, the inside linebacker, Raylan Goforth also being out. So they decided, let's put another DB on the field. Let's get Bryson Shaw out there. Uh, let's get Latrell McCutcheon out there. Give those guys some opportunities. And against Arizona, that made total sense because, you know, they have the wide receivers that you want to really slow down. So USC used the dime 66 times out of 70 snaps. Well, against Cows, it was similar, not as much, but 57 of 73 snaps, USC used their dime defense. I thought it was interesting. They didn't necessarily stick with it, and maybe that's because Raylan Gofor came back. You wanted to get him in the mix, but they played more nickel against Colorado. It could also just do with the fact that the personnel, Colorado, the one thing they can do a little bit is run the ball. They can't throw the ball at all, so you feel more comfortable with more linebackers on the field, and the playmakers that they have or lack of playmakers they have is more fitting for USC's linebackers there. So there's different reasons why it may have been, but I thought it was just interesting you know, just to note it that – 44 of the 56 snaps came in nickel versus Colorado. And after being 123 of 143 snaps in the dime versus Arizona and Colorado and Cal. But the interesting thing for me was that the dime defense was really good against Colorado. They get only gave up 14 yards and 12 snaps. So if you can get 1.7 yards per snap or whatever it is, 1.2 yards per snap, um, then that's a defense you want to explore using a little bit more. We'll see against UCLA. Obviously, you got to stop that running rush attack of UCLA first and then try to go from there and worry about Jake Bobo and any of the other wide receivers and Dorian Thompson Robinson running. So I'll be interested to see, you know, if there's any dime used. And if they do use the dime, what situations are they using it for? But do we see USC go back to more of the new style 4-3 or the traditional 4-3 that they've used a little tiny bit early in the season that we haven't seen since the Arizona State game, actually? So, you know, will USC put more linebackers on the field if Eric Gentry is healthy uh, with the fact with the way that UCLA wants to run the ball and the way they want to attack downhill? Do you try to switch things up going against the Bruins? I don't know. We'll see see if that happens. But like I said, the dime was really, really good against uh, against Colorado. And another area where USC was really good against Colorado was spreading out the Colorado defense. You know, they had 13, they averaged over 13 yards per snap on, you know, just a small handful, but five snaps when they went five wide. That included both of Kyle Ford's long third down pickups. Now, when I say five wide, I don't mean five wide receivers. I just mean that it went to an empty set, you know, with with Caleb Williams in the backfield by himself. 
you know, USC will sometimes split out the tight end. Sometimes they'll split out the the running back. USC has not actually gone to a five wide receiver set this season, which I think is a little bit interesting there with the thing, the thoughts that you may normally have of an air raid offense, but that has not happened at all. And I, th- I think it's interesting that, you know, USC has used the, the five wide look, you know, with splitting out the running backs. They've done it a little bit every single game. You know, they have uh, looking at it right now, you have 44 total snaps with five wide. All 44 have been pass calls. You know, there've been no design quarterback runs. So I wonder if that's something that could be uh, down the line where they use Caleb Williams and they're saving it for, you know, a particular defense that have look, a particular defense that'll face. If that's something that they'll try to uh, take advantage of his legs, use the QB draw, or maybe even a, you know, QB power with a wide receiver in motion or something, some different things that they could do with the five wide, the empty sets that they've had. USC also had success in their four wide looks, uh, you know, when they had four out, eight and a half yards per play compared to just 5.2 yards per play with three wide receivers split out. And once again, that's showing that USC is better without a tight end on the field. Uh, they had they gained 8.3 yards per play with a tight end with without a tight end to 5.7 with a tight end on the field. And I think that's been the case in all but one game. So that's an interesting trend that I've seen throughout the season. I know you want to have the tight ends on to run the ball and try to you know wear down defenses, but USC has been much more productive, at least just in yards per play. And some of that plays into, you know, you're going to use the tight ends more in the red zone. You're looking for shorter yardage situations, those type things. But it has been a noticeable thing, noticeable trend throughout the season. Let's take a quick break. We'll come right back. We'll jump into your guys' questions and answer what's burning, the burning desires that you guys want to know about. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All 
All right, guys. I hope you guys uh, appreciated that break. Enjoyed the sponsors. Check those guys out as well. Let's jump into your questions. We're going to start on Twitter. John wanted to know, is this real life talking about Trojan football? And if by you mean not the Clay Helton era and success and the fact that USC has played well and they're intriguing and they're in the mix for the college football playoff as well as the Pac-12 championship and all those things, yes, it's real life. It's amazing what happens with really good quote with really good coaching and you know when everyone's bought in. That's been the big thing too is the chemistry of this team. It's the one thing that you know we didn't know about coming into the season and I thought was really uh, you know was going to be something that determined how the season's gone, but. Look back at that Travis Dye moment. Look at everyone coming around him and, you know, coming together. I think maybe that even becomes a rallying point. You know, obviously you want Travis Dye on the field, but can USC use that as a rallying point to, to, as they go for the, through for the rest of the season? That'll be interesting to see. Um, as it's quite possible with the way this team is constructed and how everyone seems to be bought in for each other. So that'll be an interesting one to see. Meg16 said he's got more of a comment than a question, but over the past few weeks, has anyone else noticed Caleb Williams' body language towards Austin Jones? Seems kind of off-putting, almost like they that Caleb's not happy that Austin Jones is on the field, maybe due to not being assignment sound. I have not noticed the necessarily the body language. I would have to go back and watch through each game and see and to, to pick up on that. It's not something that's, that's jumped out to me. Uh, Caleb Williams is is a little bit emotional on the field. Like he gives his opinion when a when a wide receiver runs a different route than he, he says. You know, he shows a little bit of emotion. He's not that steely, stoic quarterback. Which maybe that's a, a something that some coaches would want him to be. Uh, Lincoln Riley kind of lets him go and be himself uh, because everyone gravitates towards him. And you know, Caleb is emotional. And not, it doesn't seem like he is necessarily degrading the players, but you know he wants things to be to to be successful, and he you know, he lets players know what they need to do to to do that. So if if Caleb Williams is unhappy with Austin Jones, he's gonna have to get over it because Austin Jones is gonna be on the field a lot going forward here. So I haven't noticed that at all, but we'll keep an eye on it going forward. Now, Eric wanted to know any indicators in the participation count for which tight end will get the most reps against UCLA. I wish we ran them more outside flex in the red zone with Kyle Ford on the opposite side. That's a matchup nightmare. And it's interesting. They have used the tight ends flexed out occasionally in the in the red zone. They've used the tight ends as big targets, particularly in the red zone, much more than anywhere else in the field. Uh, they, they much prefer getting the ball to Jordan Addison or Mario Williams, Michael Jackson, the smaller wide receivers in space and letting them do work than trying to find the big tight end over the middle of the field. But in the red zone, that changes a little bit. You know, the, the tight ends have, you know, had success so far this season. I believe they have six or seven t- touchdowns as a group. Uh, I think that they've been able to be successful in the red zone with the tight ends. They even ran against Cal the first time all season. They ran a play with three tight ends on the field at the same time. And it ended up being a two-yard touchdown pass to Lake McCree. So they've had some success with the tight ends in the red zone. So I don't think that you'll necessarily see anything different there. But what I think is interesting, and what I said a little bit earlier, is that you know USC hasn't been as good with the tight ends on the field. So how are they going to use those tight ends? Are they going to use a lot of them? Do you use them just in short yardage situations? How important are they to the run game? How important are they now with Travis Dye being out? Do you need to keep a tight end in the block? You know, early in the season when Josh Follow was being used, it was mostly to be in as a blocker, whether that be in the run game or in the pass game. But we've seen him being used more as a receiving target over the middle of the field, and Sometimes that's just going against your tendencies with a certain player so that you can find some open receivers and whatnot. 
But I think what's interesting about the tight end position is how the, the, the snap counts have shifted throughout the season. You know, early in the season, Malcolm Epps was, you know, getting averaging 16 through the first six games, 16 snaps per game. He's only had 20 total the last four games, so five per game. So his snaps have plummeted. Uh, Josh Follow, we've seen him average 29 per game the last six games. He's kind of taken over as that primary tight end. But then we saw Lake McCree. He had 22 against Cal. He had 11 against Colorado, but six of those were the garbage time the last in the fourth quarter where getting some guys some opportunities. So don't necessarily consider that, you know, as a big breakout performance for him necessarily as far as snap counts. But, you know, who's been the most productive? At least, you know, as far as the team as a whole, when they've been on the field, it's been Malcolm Epps. You know, he's been in, been in for 111 plays this season, and USC has averaged 5.7 yards per play when he's been in. Compare that with Lake McCree at 5.6. Josh Follow has played 184 snaps, and USC's gained only 4.0 snaps when he's been in. So, you know, there's a little bit of, of a concern there uh, that, you know, that you're, you're looking at it and you're just not being as productive when Josh Follow's in there. Now, again, that comes back to when you're using your particular players and when you're doing different things. And also, you know, has USC been as good recently as they were in the Rice game or some of the other games early in the season where they're putting up big yards? So that's something to keep an eye on. The tight end usage is also something to keep an eye on. As we mentioned, how are they going to use it with Travis Dye being out? But they had a season-high 53 snaps with the tight end versus Cal. Even, uh, you know, they split out the running back and went empty set, you know, season high 11 times, like I talked about just a minute ago. But they, you know, they had the the user tied in the most in that game. They split out the tied in at times in the game. And then against Colorado, and it's just game planning and how each game is different, they had a nearly season high in snaps without a tight end against the Buffalo. So we'll see at the last couple games of the season how important is it for USC to have the tight end on the field and how they use them. Is it an extra offensive lineman out there? Is it just a primary blocker? Or is it someone they're looking to stretch the field over the middle? And that's where I think you see the differences of do you keep Josh Follow in there? Do you use Lake McCree or Malcolm Epps? Malcolm Epps is more of a stretch the field guy. He's a big target in the red zone. Lake McCree, that's where you saw him last year. Excel was being split out almost all the time and being that. So Josh Follow is definitely the best blocker of the group, and that's why he's been getting the majority of the snaps recently. So Cal Flow wanted to know, why is it Rajon Davis getting any snaps? I don't get it. That makes two of us. I don't really understand. I mean, it, we've talked about this kind of ad nauseum uh, throughout the season, but even more importantly, last season is when I really didn't get it. USC's defense was so bad, and they were struggling with things mightily. Why not throw him into the mix and see what he could do? But the fact that he hasn't gotten in, even with the injuries USC's had the inside linebacker, tells me that, you know, that's probably on him. If two coaching staffs haven't been haven't thought that he's been ready to go into the game, uh, you know, that's that's a concerning thing for a former four-star player. Now, I think you also have to take into account in high school he played off the edge. He was more of a pass rusher at times versus a inside linebacker. He's been an inside linebacker for USC, so that's a little bit different position. So maybe it's been a, you know, a learning there's been a learning curve there. He is contributing on special teams. He's a guy that's been a consistent performer on special teams for USC both last season and this season, which is why he hasn't redshirted either year, but you know, he's a guy that you would like to see get in there and see the skill set. You know, the times he's been in there, it's not like he's making mistakes. So the very limited reps that he's had. So you would like to see, okay, let's see what he can do, given an opportunity. And that's why you would really have liked to have seen USC 
blow out Arizona, even though we see that Arizona continues to get better and better as the season progresses. But blow out Cal, not give up those points late when you had a 20-point lead. That fourth quarter could have been all reserves and guys like Ray John Davis getting more of an opportunity. And then you might have even seen the reserves get in earlier against Colorado because I felt like Alex Grinch kind of, you know, USC was up by 20 to start the fourth quarter against Cal. So, you know, he – the the they pulled a couple guys early and you know the nickel back a couple other spots where they got guys rotating in but they put those backups in and suddenly Cal comes back in that game whereas the Colorado game the start of the fourth quarter the starters were still out there they're like we're not letting anything happen here until we you know make sure this is locked up so maybe if they take care of business against Cal you see some of those reserves a little bit earlier against Colorado too so just some as those things slowly compound and snowball and if you're a backup, you're just feeling like, come on, man, you know, take care of business so I can get my opportunities out there. You wanted to see it against Fresno. You wanted to see it against Arizona State, and you're not seeing those guys get in there. And that was a, a big pitfall of the Clay Helton era of not being able to get those second and third string guys, those opportunities on field to get them prepared uh, to be ready sooner rather than later. So that's something that you would like to see, and I think that's a product, one of the the depth issues that USC has of just not feeling comfortable being able to go to those backups and whatnot. So it's something that I think they'll get better at and be able to blow out teams more consistently going forward. But it's been a concern definitely this year, not being able to get them in. And Rajon Davis has been one of the guys that unfortunately hasn't got a ton of playing, playing opportunities on the defensive side. Now on special teams, he's averaging 16 snaps per game um, on special teams. So I think that shows you that he's a guy that they want out there that, that they're going to be able to to use a lot in different ways. Actually, 14.9. He's averaging 16 snaps total and 14.9 on special teams. So he's he's one of the most frequent special teams players out there. He and Malcolm Epps and Brendan Outlaw and a couple other guys um, have been out there for you know double-digit snaps. I think Rajon actually may be the most – has played the most uh, total special team snaps all season. We got one more Twitter question, but I'm going to save that because it's a basketball question. We'll get to the basketball, baseball questions at the very end. We're going to jump over to the P, see what you guys had to say there. EK Corpus want to know if you we run a two-back set, if USC runs a two-back set. I don't run any of those. Thoughts on it being Austin Jones and Taj Washington or Austin Jones and Relique Brown? So something interesting. You know, USC had two in the backfield 17 times against Arizona. But only one of those was with two running backs. You know, they use the tight end in the backfield. They've, we've seen the tight ends line up as a kind of a, you know, as right beside the quarterback as a as a lead blocker, as kind of a faux fullback in a pistol formation. We've seen that throughout the season. We've also seen recently the tight ends lined up at a running back position beside the quarterback with a running back on the other side. And then, you know, just using the cross action as they would be coming across to pick up a blocker similar to what they would do if they were lined up as an H back or lined up as a tight end, you know, coming across the formation. So just giving a different angle for them to go make that block. So we've seen that a little bit. We've also seen the wide receivers back there. We saw a little bit of Michael Jackson. We've seen Terrell Bynum. We've seen um, Taj Washington. We've seen some different guys back there. So they did that 17 times against Arizona where they had two players in the backfield with Caleb Williams. Then they only had eight against Cal and only three against Colorado. Now, is that, hey, you're breaking out some stuff after a bye week against Arizona, and then maybe we don't want to use so much against Cal or Colorado that we don't have to use. We liked what we saw against Arizona. We'll keep it for a little bit later. Don't really know necessarily right there, but only one snap in those three games have been with two running backs on the field at the same time. Now, they did that early in the season where they used multiple running backs, and you, you, we saw Austin Jones lined up as a, as the H-back, you know, up as in kind of a fullback role. 
We saw Travis Dye doing that too. So that was kind of interesting to me. And I asked those guys about it. You know, have you ever been a lead blocker like that before? Neither one of them had really done it before, but they said, hey, whatever it takes for the team. But you saw a a quick decrease, a quick decline of two running backs in the backfield together. You know, they had seven against seven snaps against Rice with two running backs, five against Stanford. And then they haven't had, you know, uh, four or more. Since then, they have, or, or excuse me, they haven't had more than four since then. It's been two, two, four, one, and one in the games that they have had two running backs. So it's not something they've used frequently. I, I don't know if that's necessarily that could be one of two things. They just didn't like what they saw from you know Austin Jones, Travis Dyes, lead blockers for for Lee Brown or for the other guy, or they've had more trust in the tight ends going forward. And I think that may have been a little bit more of it because we didn't see the tight ends as much in the Rice game and started to slowly see them a little bit more. And then when Josh Follow has kind of emerged, you've seen the tight ends a little bit more. So you feel more comfortable with them being the blocker rather than, you know, with Josh Follow and his big body being a blocker than Austin Jones or, you know, Travis Dye having been a lead blocker. Aerodynamics wants to know, with Clancy Pendergast coordinating UCLA's defense, what can we expect from how he tries to approach USC given his reputation to take away one thing from opposing offenses if he tries to take away the run does USC challenge him with the strength of our own line if USC if he tries to take away the run you would like to see USC really or if he tries to take away the pass or does USC challenge him with the strength of the line I, I don't know if the question was a, a little bit uh, wrong there or if you're just saying even if he tries to take away the run do they still try to run it at him I think if he tries to, you know, play uh, dime defense or even play quarters or something like that, because Clancy would do a lot of different things in that regard. You know, put a safety at linebacker, do things like that against teams that spread the the field. And then that was when you see Matt Lopes, the safety, coming up and playing the, you know, the walk on safety, playing linebacker, and then Mike Leach in Washington State saying, "Okay, we're going to run right at that guy every time that he's in that position." So those are the type type things that Lincoln Riley will have to pick up on and try to attack. You know, Clancy does different things like that. He had a play against Arizona, I think, where he rushed two and dropped nine. So to try to have you know more bodies out there to contain Jaden Delora, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised we see that against uh, against. Uh, Caleb Williams, maybe he tries to drop eight at times. So what does USC do? Well, you got to attack with the run. And sometimes USC, uh, I think Gerard calls them the most successful, successfully reluctant team to run the ball. You know, they are successful running the ball when they when they attempt to, but sometimes they just get reluctant to do it. They want to throw the ball a little bit more than run the ball. And, you know, that's something where I think you got to stick with what you're reading as a quarterback. And if you see that there's five in the box, then, hey, run it right down their throat every single time until uh, and let that offensive line, which is, you know, it's graded by PFF as the number one offensive line. You know, why not, why not run it right at them and, and let that offensive line go to work? Um, I, I think you'll see some different things like that from Clancy Pendergast. I think he'll try to mix it up. Uh, but the, the thing with Clancy Pendergast was also when he was at USC is that he wasn't trusting a lot of reserves. So can USC control the clock in this game and, you know, kind of wear down some of those defensive linemen? Can you wear those guys down and can the run game be what carries you in the fourth quarter? That'll be interesting. I would like to see that from USC, but I don't think that'll necessarily be the case. I think you're going to see the ball flying around. I think that you're going to see a lot of points on both sides of the ball. And I think that Clancy Pendergast isn't going to have much answers for USC. Uh, I don't know if USC is going to have much answers for Zach Charbonnet on the other side either. So we'll see. It's going to be an interesting matchup of two really good offenses against two not great defenses. And, uh, you know, neither one uh, being able to stop the other team. It could be quite a shootout. Fake Pete Carroll want to know shotgun. Is Romello Height still with the team enrolled? And do you think he will be back next year? We'll start with that question. He's got a couple more here, but 
Yes, Romello Height is still with the team. He was on the sideline last game. You could see, you know, the big body looks kind of like a bouncer behind some of the players. Uh, he was wearing the fatigues uh, or the military camouflage uh, warm-ups that they had. So you, you saw him there. He is with the team. He is expected to come back next year. Hopefully the surgery went very well and come back and be healthy. USC could really use them off the edge. And especially you're going to be losing some edge players. You're going to lose a Nick Figueroa. You're going to lose Solomon Bird. You need Romello Height to step up and you need Corey Foreman to take that next step somewhere along the way as well. And, uh, you know, there's always the possibility that Corey Foreman, you know, a lot of people are rumoring him to be in the transfer portal. I don't see that happening, but, you never know in this this era. Uh, you know, someone could offer him some money or more playing time or something, and say, "Hey, you got to come here." And maybe he goes for it. But the the the, re- the way that he's stuck it out so far at USC when things haven't been going and is making some impact plays now. Hopefully, that continues the next couple of weeks. We'll see against a more quality offensive line than than Colorado's because, like everything else in Colorado, nothing is good on that team. Fake Pete want to know uh, also know is is linebacker Taylor Katoa ever going to see the field? Was a four-star with some hype, one of his two-year mission, and nothing. Don't understand why they gamble on prospects going on mission. Seems like we had a few recently that didn't pan out. Well, that's also part of the Clay Helton era, and that's also Taylor Katoa, unfortunately, got injured right before he went on this mission. You know, his first year on campus, he was making some plays early in the spring, and unfortunately, he tears his ACL and then misses the entire season, then goes on his two, two-year two mission, and just has never been really in the mix since he's come back. He is on the team. I did see him on the sideline last game, but unfortunately for him, he just has not been a guy that has been able to, to make his way up in the mix. And you haven't even seen USC really try to move him to a different position or anything and, and see if he can make some moves somewhere else. So I don't know uh, you know, uh, about Taylor Katoa and you know where he's at. I know he's had some lingering knee issues too after coming back. I know that's been a, a problem in the past. I don't know if that's been necessarily the case this season, but he seems like a guy that – is putting in the work and you could at least use him on special teams. So the fact that he's not out there is a a little concerning for just his future health. And, you know, the fact that that, whether he's going to stay around the program going forward. SDL Trojan says, have you identified any specific players on defense who have gotten meaningfully better throughout the season? Jacoby Covington is one that stands out to him. I, I think the interesting thing here is, you know, you've seen some progression from different players, but, even your star players, you know, Caleb Bullock, I didn't think played great early in the season, but I think he's been playing really well as that single high safety is playing that center field. I mean, looking like King Griffey Jr. out there running down some balls the last couple of weeks. So I think he's a guy that stood out to me. Now, Bryson Shaw obviously has gotten in the mix and made some plays. And, you know, I don't know if you, you consider that one since he wasn't a starter to begin with, but obviously he has worked his way up the ranks to get into the mix. And then you look at the, the defensive line and, the guy that stands out there has making an impact more than anticipated isn't Tuli Tupelotu because we thought he would be good. But Tyrone Tolini, he's a guy that has continued to just constantly seems like he's in the mix. Um, you know, he was there to help with Tuli Tupelotu on that safety. You know, he's he's got a couple sacks this season. Like, you don't see him make a ton of plays. Um, but when he make when you see him, when you notice him, he is making a big play. It's a it's a sack. It's a, you know getting in there for a tackle for loss. Um, but most of the other time, he's holding the point of attack and doing th- different things like that. Similar with Stanley Tafu. You know those guys are eating up blocks. They're not necessarily like your your big two gap uh, defensive tackles, but they eat up a lot of blocks as they're going on stunts and different things, so that you can free up the defensive ends and different and the rush ends. So um, th- those are a couple of guys that I've seen on the offensive side. Obviously, Mason Murphy is the one that, that is most noticeable, just taking some steps and you know being able to to 
get in the mix and start three games in a row for USC at two different positions. But Jonah Monheim continues to impress me just the way that he continues to get better and better as as, uh, he gets more experience. So that's a couple on the offensive side as well. Speaking of the offensive line, Luna 1990, speaking of Mason Murphy a little bit too, he said, what's up with Cortland Ford? What would your starting offensive lineup look like next season with the players and commits we got now? I don't know what's up with Cortland Ford. That one is a big mystery to me, to be honest. The left tackle position, uh, you, you know, you look at it and Cortland Ford started the first two games. Then he missed two games from an injury. He came back against Arizona State and he left the game early. He didn't play in two games. Don't know if that was injury related or not, or just performance. Then he played 25 snaps against Arizona when Bobby Haskins went out. And he only got 12 against Colorado, and that was in the garbage time with all the backups. So that was very surprising to me when they when Bobby Haskins has been held out, they held him out of the Cal game. You know, that he would be in there if he was completely healthy. But they held him out of the Cal game. Obviously, the shoulders, it, he's having issues with his upper body, shoulders, pecs, elbows, whatever it may be, uh, the offensive linemen typically have to deal with. They held him out of that Cal game. They held him out of the first half of the Colorado game. But then when Andrew Voorhees leaves for the second half of the Colorado game, they decide we're going to put Bobby Haskins in there instead of Cortland Ford. I thought that was a very interesting and eye-popping move to me that you decide, okay, a guy we're trying to keep out because we don't feel like he's healthy is better than Cortland Ford, who's the guy that started at left tackle to begin the season. So that one just baffles me. I don't know if Cortland Ford had a uh, re-aggravation of an injury or exactly what is going on there. It's just very strange to me to see that Cortland Ford started the season. It was okay. He wasn't great necessarily. Played fine. Gets injured. Leaves a couple games. Comes back and is back in the mix. You know, 1A, 1B with Bobby Haskins rotating in. Gets beat for a holding call. Taken out of the game. You can see he's not 100%. And then suddenly he's just not in the mix anymore. So, you know, he played 25 snaps in the Arizona game. I thought he looked pretty good there. He graded out pretty well as far as pro football focus but then doesn't play at all against Cal. And then when they make that move uh, at left tackle uh, with Andrew Voorhees going out and deciding to flip everyone, move everybody around, it's Bobby Haskins that goes back in there. So that was that was very strange to me and, and pretty interesting. And, you know, it's something that I definitely keep an eye on it the last couple of games and see, you know, then you wonder, okay, do you, do you start wondering about is Cortland Ford going to be around next season? Because if he doesn't feel appreciated or he doesn't feel like the coaches you know, like him or whatever, does he decide to look for another opportunity? Those are the type of players that you're kind of looking at there. So that'll be a big question with my starting offensive lineup look next season. I'm going to say that he's sticking around. I think that Mason Murphy is showing you a lot and that hopefully you can put him at right tackle, Cortland Ford at left tackle. You can bump in Jonah Monheim to right guard. And then you move Justin Dietrich to center. And now you feel like you got four guys that have some experience that can still grow together and have played a good bit beside each other as far as Dietrich and Monheim being side by side on the right side right now. Um, and then the fact that Mason Murphy has played alongside Jonah Monheim when he's played right guard. And then you figure out left guard. Is it Gino Quinones? Can he take that next step and become a starter? Or is one of those freshmen ready to come in? And I don't know that they are. I, I'm always wary of offensive line, freshman offensive linemen taking a big step and you know making that jump. And you saw it with Andrew Voorhees. Look at what he's done as an older player in his career. You know, one of the best in the nation last year as far as PFF grades, all American, all that type of stuff. He's going to be you know a draft pick after this season. Has had a really good year again. 
remember his freshman year when he was thrown in the mix because Toa Lobendon had staph infection and because I think it was uh, Chuma Adoga went down with an injury and you know Austin Jackson gets thrown in at Washington State and suddenly I, th- I think it was Vianne Talamavayo went out with a game, a season in- injury, and Andrew Voorhees is thrown in as a true freshman. And he got beat. And people were talking about how terrible he is and he's not any good and all this. And you try to just pump the brakes on people a little bit that freshmen aren't expected to jump in immediately and be able to perform like that. And it's very rare when a guy like Marcus Martin can do that and start from day one as a, as a true freshman, especially as a three-star guy. Both those guys were. And USC's offensive linemen they have bringing in aren't five-star guys. Uh, I think they're three and four-star, and there's some talent there. And But it'll be interesting to see if they can come in and compete for that spot or if it's Gina Quinones or if there's somebody else that can get in the mix. You know, We've seen some of those other backups that have uh, played a little bit at, at the tail end of games. Can some of those guys, you know, if someone can take a big take a big jump forward? While we're talking about the offensive line, really quickly, I want to send out my thoughts to the the University of Virginia community. Bobby Haskins, obviously, uh, you know, was a member of that group. Just a, a terrible situation there. You know, the UVA transfers, Bobby Haskins and Brandon Outlaw, you know, were both athletes there, and you know they've got to be going through a really tough week this week. So send my thoughts out to them, and, and hope that uh, you know everyone that uh, Virginia community is. Uh, you know, healing right now after such a tragic situation with, with what happened there. Another offensive line question from Super Trojan 5. He said, do you agree with the pro football focus grade for the offensive line? They're currently ranked as the number one offensive line, but it seems that Caleb Williams is always under pressure. Also, will the blocking be a concern with Travis Dye injured? And I've hemmed and hauled to kind of going back and forth on this in my mind. Of, do I agree with that grade? Do I not agree with it? I don't necessarily think they're the best in the nation. However, I I think that if you look at it just from the sack numbers or the pressures that Caleb Williams has been under, I think that's also a bad way to look at it in the same regard because a lot of those times, those are are times when Caleb Williams is holding the ball for five, six, seven, eight, ten ten seconds sometimes before he's getting pressure, uh, before the pressure is getting there, before he's being, you know, hounded by the the defense. So, you know, I, I broke down. Caleb Williams, uh, a couple, I don't know if his last mailbag podcast or the one before that, but the first 15 sacks that he had, he'd, uh, that USC had allowed this season, I only charged five of those to the offensive line, in my personal opinion, of you know what it was. You know, sometimes there were issues where the running backs weren't making the block. So that was four of the 15. There were a couple of times where the QB just held it and, the, you know, it was a coverage sack completely. You know, the, there was one of them where Caleb Williams was sacked after nine seconds. There's seven seconds before he was ever pressured. You know, that's not on the offensive line at all. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple where it's just kind of the design and, you know, what what you're kind of asking the offensive lineman to do. So I think the offensive line has been pretty good. And I think they've been getting better and better as the season progressed. The problem has been recently, and, I, and when I say they've been getting better and better, I mean as far as doing what's being asked new in this offense, you know, pulling on those GT um the counters, you know, getting out in space on those screenplays. You know, there wasn't a ton of that in the previous offense. So I think that's, you know, you're asking something new of the offensive line. And, you know, I think they've done a really good job of reacting to that and being able to to grow from that. The quite the the biggest concern recently has been there just hadn't had that been been that continuity because of injuries. You know, Andrew Voorhees been in and out of the lineup. Bobby Hassan's been in and out of the lineup. Justin Dedich was out of the lineup earlier this season. So, you know, Jonah Monheim has been a steady right right tackle, right guard, whatever spot you need him at. And then Brett Nelon's been a rock in the middle of the, defense, the offensive line. And he's carrying their grade pretty good uh, as far as the offensive line. He's one of the top offensive linemen in the country, or the top centers in the country for sure. Um, I'm trying to pull up his grade right here. 
as far as the season grade, but Brett Nealon is one of the top uh, rated players on USC's team total. He's got a 90.2 overall grade uh, by himself. And the next highest offensive lineman is Andrew Voorhees at 84.9. So Brett Nealon has been terrific for USC in the middle of the lineup. And that's, you know, that's helping um, push that grade up because of how strong he's been. And he's been that consistent force for them. So I think if they can get healthy here, the, the last couple of games would be huge for them. You know, just talked about Bobby Haskins, expect him to be back fully healthy. At least that's what Lincoln Riley says. Take that for with a grain of salt, if you'd like, but says that he will be back fully healthy. So it should be back in the rotation. Now I'm curious, or at least he'll be back starting. I'm curious to see if maybe you start seeing a little bit of rotation with Mason Murphy, get him a couple more snaps in there because of how well he's improved as the season's going on. Uh, and, and we'll see what goes kind of goes from there. That's it for our football question. So let's jump over to basketball. David Law want to know, is this bas- this season's basketball team pretty much a lost cause, like a 500 type team? Don't give up on the basketball team after three games. Why do I say that? Sometimes I would say that. You look at it and go, this is not good basketball, and it hasn't been great basketball through the first three games. But I think you should listen to the previous podcast, listen to Martin Bahar talk about the you know a new team, all the young guys. Everyone basically is in a new role this season. Drew Peterson, Boogie Ellis, not so much. And you kind of know what you're going to get from them, and you need them to take a little bit more of a step up from what the way, how, the way they played the first couple games. But – Guys are going to continue to progress to get better as the season goes along. USC's players under Andy Enfield progress. They get better and better as the season goes on. They get better and better their time at USC. I think Reese Dixon Waters has not played very well the first couple games, but I think he is going to be a stud for USC this season. And I think you'll see those freshmen get more comfortable. Isaiah Sellers hasn't really looked comfortable in the first couple games, but I think he's a guy that will be a weapon for them as the season progresses. So there, there's a big question mark, though. You don't really know what to make of this basketball team because there's a you know a big health concern. Is Vince Iwachuku going to be available for them going forward? And I say that, and let's jump to another question. We'll come back to David's other question, but SC Grad want to know, I'm glad that Vince seems to be getting stronger, but it's a tricky situation where we definitely don't want to rush him back and risk his health. Are there any big men being recruited to place, replace Vince in case he isn't cleared to play? If not, do you know of any other backup plan? So I bring up this question to talk about Vince Uwuchukwu. Obviously had the cardiac issue this summer, the incident. Um, he actually had surgery and had a pacemaker implant, uh, implanted, uh, from what I was told from a source. So that's something that's happened with other basketball players in recent years. You know, Baylor's had this happen with a couple of different players. And then they've been able to come back and play. So it's something that has to be monitored, yes. But is he going to be cleared? I think that, that there are examples out there and even Keontae Johnson who was at uh, Florida has come back and you know he, he collapsed on the the bench during a Florida Florida State game that canceled the rest of the game he didn't play the rest of the year didn't play last year he has been cleared to play for Kansas State this year Kansas State cleared him I guess Florida did not and was, maybe that was part of the reason why he ended the transfer portal. I don't know the exact uh, details on that but came back and I think he's playing pretty well for Kansas State already which is great to see uh, you know when you see someone think that they may not be able to play basketball ever again. But Vince is a monster. I mean, he is he's already 28 pounds more than what we had him. You know, he weighs 28 pounds more than what we had him in our database, I believe it is. You know, he's put on 21 pounds since arriving at USC, I believe is the number that, that I was told. You know, and, and you know, maybe some of that'll come off when he starts running around a little bit uh, and is clear to to be able to do cardio. But 
he his lower body is thick and he's super athletic. You can tell just with him goofing off with the managers and stuff, how the athleticism he has there. So if they get him back, it's a completely different team. Now you got a rim runner, you got a guy that can finish lobs, you got a guy that you can do different things with, and maybe even that you can throw the ball into on the block when you need a basket, which you don't really feel comfortable doing that with right now with Josh Morgan or Kajani Wright uh, or even Harrison Hornery. You know, so I think it's hard to judge this team just yet, just because there's that big looming question of with Vince or without Vince. And maybe this is a 500 team without Vince. I think they still could be better than that. And I think, you know, I think we'll see how much they grow in the next month or so before they get into conference play. Uh, and then we'll see what they can do in conference play separately. Um, but they got a lot of young guys. You know, you look at Kobe Johnson, Reese Dixon Waters, Malik Thomas, Harrison Hornery, that second year group that played a little bit last year, but not that much. And then you got the freshmen, and they all are going to have a learning curve, that group. So that's why it's so important for Boogie Ellis and Drew Peterson to carry the weight early in the season, especially. And then hopefully, you know, you see those freshmen start to develop and they can start taking over a little bit bigger roles. So it, it'll be interesting to see how the team plays out. Don't give up on them just yet, though. I know it was ugly basketball if you had the Pac 12 network and got to watch any of those games, but don't give up on them just yet. Give them a little bit of time. And even if they struggle a little bit in non-conference play, I think they could still end up being pretty good in conference play. And maybe that helps bolster their resume enough to to potentially make a run. We'll see. But again, if you get Vince back in December or January, uh, if the the school clears him, and he is progressing from what I've been told as far as his, you know, everything he's been doing, he's been cleared to work out with the team, uh, been able to lift weights and do things like that. Now it'll be just being cleared, take those baby steps. That's what it's all about, taking those baby steps, getting cleared to run, doing individual stuff, and then team stuff and all all that. And then if the restrictions are taken off, then the question – the restrictions are taken off by the doctors, then the question becomes, does the legal team clear him to play and does USC give the okay there? That'll be a big one, and we don't know. That's a – it's up in the air. The coaching staff is hopeful. That's what I've been told. But uh, it's still a big unknown in that one. David also said, given the new commits, how would you assess the ceiling of next year's team? And this one goes right back to, to Vince Uchukwu. If he is on the team with Isaiah Collier, with those sellers taking that step forward, I think he'll take this season. Trey White, you know, getting more comfortable. I think they could be a dynamic team and be really good next year. Now you'll you'll have a couple of growing pains along the way with with Silas Demery and with Isaiah Collier as they're they're you know filling in some of those roles on the wings and you know as the lead guards, but I think it could be a really fun, really special group. You know Isaiah Collier is going to be a first round pick eventually. You know just like Evan Mobley when he came in, when you get a number one, number two, number three overall player in the in the country, it's must watch TV. And with Isaiah Collier leading the way. Everyone says you're going to want to watch this team. It's going to be fun to watch with the way they play. And I think this year is a big, big stepping stone with the four-guard system they're trying to implement. So that's another reason why I don't want to give up on the team just yet. But uh, going forward, see how they continue to develop in that system. And then when you add a a player like Isaiah Carter that everyone wants to play with, so maybe you get a big-time transfer to come in, You know, it could be a really fun, really interesting team next year. Super Trojan want to know, do you think Malik Thomas can have a big role in this team this season? I think with the way that USC has struggled to score the ball, they need to have Malik Thomas have a bigger role. 
not necessarily a big role, but a bigger role, uh, and give him opportunities to go in there and just be that that microwave scorer. You know, he can heat it up and score real quickly. Uh, that's what he did in high school. That's what he can do. Yeah, the big question for him to get the coaching staff's trust is to play defense, be able to run all the plays correctly, all those type things. And, but he's a guy that is is trying all the time. You know, watching practice, I got a chance to catch a little bit of practice uh, last week or two weeks ago. You know, he is always asking questions. He's in it. You know, even though, you know, the coaches may yell at him sometimes, uh, you know, watching practices last year, he would get yelled at and he would be very attentive. It, it's not like he was getting down on himself. He was taking it all in. He accepts, you know, the the criticism and, you know, just tries to learn from it. So I think he's a guy that will continue to get better and better. And I would like to see him have a little bit bigger role because the way he, he can put the ball in the basket is is something that, that USC may need this season more than may, they may have anticipated initially. And the final basketball question, Jason Tripp want to know the prognosis on Iwachuku, which we mentioned just a minute ago, and helping Morgan out. The boys are having some growing pains transitioning from always having two bigs being the focal point to going four guard sets and going small ball. And I would agree with that. Yeah, they're had, having those growing pains. And you see even the couple times where they put Harrison Hornery at the four that – Things were a little bit smoother for USC in that Vermont game. And I think that's just the the familiarity, pushing the tempo a little bit more. That's something I think they, they definitely should have done against Vermont, against you know Alabama State. It, all those teams that where you have more athleticism, you got to showcase it and push the tempo a little bit more. They couldn't do that against Florida Gulf Coast, unfortunately, because they just kept turning the ball over. So uh, I, I think that I think you'll see as they go forward, Mount St. Mary's on Friday. I think they should take care of business there. And hopefully you see them start finding a rhythm finding a rhythm with their shot and pushing the tempo a little bit more so that they can push and kick out and shoot some more threes. That's one thing that Andy Enfield mentioned the other night is that he expects his team to shoot 25 threes if you're playing four guards. So they've got to get up a, a couple more threes each game and start knocking some of those shots down. And if you knock some, some of them down, suddenly uh, you get more confidence to shoot a couple more, which uh, is always the case. I mean, a couple of baseball questions. David Law, pretty simply, just any new baseball info for us. Uh, and I'll have some more baseball info actually next week because I'm going to go on Sunday after the Crosstown Showdown on Saturday. should be a great game. Looking forward to it. I'm going to go to USC. They're playing Golden West. They're scrimmaging uh, Golden West College, which is a JUCO that's pre- been pretty successful in California for years. Uh, if you want to come out, I think it's at 1 o'clock. Don't quote me on that one, but come out and see what they got. But I will learn a lot more by seeing them scrimmage than what I've seen, uh, you know, the the little bit I've seen of them at practice. Like I stopped by before the Cal game. I went over and, and watched a little bit of their scrimmage that they were playing, you know, their inner squad scrimmage and watched a couple players. But they had most of their uh, top pitchers and whatnot throwing on Friday. So I missed that, unfortunately, to cover high school games. So you're going to good, looking forward to seeing them against Golden West on Sunday and seeing some of their their top pitchers, you know, and, and beat Notre Dame. Asked, uh, you know, the baseball team has been practicing for a few weeks. Had a scrimmage at Cal Bakersfield last weekend. Have you gotten any feedback on who has looked good? That part I can give a little bit more into. You know, in that game against Bakersfield, the the biggest standout was was Bryce Martin Grizzlonic. You know, the former son of Mark Grizzl or the son of uh, former uh, Major League Baseball player Mark Grizzlonic. He went six for eight. He had two RBIs, a double, five singles. Johnny Olmstead has kind of locked down that third base position. You know, he was four for six with three walks. You know, he was, you know, on base all over the, all the place. Grezelonic, the question is going to be kind of where, where they end up slotting him. You know, they've got, uh, they've got some different options in the infield. The outfield is really thin, though. You know, and, and Austin O'Vern, which there's a question about him as well from B. Notre Dame. He says, Austin O'Vern taking part, part in the fall activities. 
He has been bouncing back and forth between baseball and football. Um, obviously, football takes up a lot of time, but he's trying to get over, and the athleticism from Austin O'Vern already pops. You know, everyone's like, yeah, that's going to be a dude. Now, you know, some baseball people that would like for him to focus on baseball, especially because he can't play football at all this season or next season or or otherwise, if he plays a snap, he has to go on scholarship for football because he's on baseball scholarship, and that's the hierarchy of scholarships. So some people would like for him to focus on uh, baseball a little bit more, but I think he's a guy that's going to be in the mix in the outfield. Cole Gabrielson in center field is, you know, has a lot of tools and everyone's excited about those. Um, and then, you know, you got a couple other pieces in the outfield, but it's really thin. The, they just not, do not have a lot of depth there. So those are some guys that that uh, are – that's a position of concern there. A couple of pitchers that I've heard have stood out. Caden Aoki, the, he's got an invisible changeup. No one seems able to be able to hit it. He had a couple of scoreless innings, I think hitless innings as well, against Bakersfield. And then I heard really good things about Evan Clark, you know, left-hander from IMG Academy, sophomore. I've heard some positive things about the the steps that he's taking going forward. Um, and then, you know, a couple of the guys that are returners, Jay Nagasi uh, and uh, Tyler Stromsberg, you know, guys that were in the rotation last year, those are guys that are going to be in the mix once again. And the last person who every time I ask, hey, who's doing well, kind of the, the one name that comes up, Almost every single time is Ryan Jackson transfer from Nevada. He has been, you know, he's going to be the starting shortstop. He's not a guy that's going to wow you with anything, but he's just constantly on base, constantly makes the plays, does all the, all the things the right way. And that's exactly what you're looking for when you're trying to build a program like USC is right now. Before I get out of here, I wanted to touch on my tweet that sparked some outrage from some people on the P over the weekend, several people on Twitter uh, when I said that the Pac-12's only hope, this is after UCLA loses to Arizona, which ruined the Crosstown showdown. Come on, guys. Let's make it a big top 10 matchup. College game day? No, they, they ruined that one. Um, and then Washington beats Oregon, which gives USC a path where if they be, win against UCLA, they will be in the Pac-12 championship. But also, it makes USC the only team that the Pac-12 has a hope for to make the college football playoff. And that's not even a guarantee there. And I tweeted the Pac-12's only hope now for a college football playoff team is now a USC team that is not ready for that spotlight. Some people got very upset about it, you know, and I wasn't saying that I don't think USC should try to be in the college football playoff. Or no, I know some people are like, no, I'd rather just go, I'd rather be in the, the Rose Bowl and play that and then go in and get destroyed by Georgia. Well, that's my thought right there. My tweet was actually an indictment of the rest of the Pac-12 that USC, a team that went 4-8 and eight in last year, is in year one of a rebuild, obviously had to bring in a ton of players, and yet that's the Pac-12's only hope? What, why is Oregon not more consistently, you know, why are they not ha- being, you know, they should have been up there. I mean, obviously they got blown out by Georgia, but they lose a bad game. UCLA, it's year five of Chip Kelly. It's year five of Dorian Thompson-Robinson. Fifth-year quarterback with a head coach that's gotten all his guys in there, all that type of stuff, should be much better. They should be a team that should be vying for a college football playoff. Utah returns its starting quarterback, returns a lot of really good pieces off a team that played a thrilling Rose Bowl game, and you lose at Florida, and Florida has proven not to be that great of a team. Your starting quarterback, your veteran quarterback, throws a really bad interception when you only needed a field goal to tie. So that's my my tweet was actually more an indictment of the rest of the Pac-12, but I understand that USC fans get upset about that. And I'm not saying that USC shouldn't get in the playoff. That is, it won't be deserving if it wins the next three games 
or that it shouldn't want to be in the college football playoff. But is this team ready to match up with a national championship caliber team like Georgia? Because if Georgia wins out, USC wins out, USC maybe gets the four seed, and Georgia gets the one seed, and that's the matchup. I don't necessarily think they are. I don't think this is the team. They're not deep enough. You know, one injury to Eric Gentry, look how much is thrown off the defense and how difficult it's been to replace someone. Whereas Georgia loses someone and they just fill in another five-star. This is not a team that's quite there yet. So I don't think they're ready for that college football playoff spotlight. Now there's been other teams that have gone to the college football playoff and haven't been ready for that spotlight. Eh, Look at Notre Dame. Every time they go, they're not really ready for the spotlight. Look at Michigan last year. They weren't ready. Does that mean you shouldn't try to get there? No. You want to go to the college football playoff. You don't want to just settle for the Rose Bowl. And hey, going to the Rose Bowl is never really settling. It's great. It's a great opportunity. It's a great event. It's amazing. I love the Rose Bowl. I loved covering it the one time I got to, which was actually Lincoln Riley versus Georgia. And Georgia won that game. That was a much more competitive game than what I think it would be this year if it was Georgia versus Lincoln Riley's team. Um, But the college football playoff, if you go one, you can, you can show is proof of concept once again for Lincoln Riley. Look what we did in year one, where we had to bring in a bunch of transfers. Hey, you're a five-star kid. You should want to come and be a part of this. Hey, we're, the rocket ship. Remember Lincoln Riley's speech about the rocket ship's going to be taken off? You want to be on it? That's what you tell these kids you know, that are getting in the college after you make an appearance in the college football playoff. And we might get it, we might have got beat in that game, but – we just need a couple more pieces, and you could be one of those guys. That's the, the recruiting pitch. Plus, the big thing is if you go to the college football playoff, it's that experience. That's what I don't think USC has right now, and I don't think that's why I don't think they're ready for the spotlight, is that they don't have experience of being in that caliber of game where every little mistake is, you know, is magnified tenfold, and one little error can change the whole dynamic of a season. You know, look at Alabama and look at some of the, you know, look at Georgia versus Alabama and one play, Tua goes in and suddenly he makes that play down the sideline. You know, those are the type of things, but look who Tua was throwing to in those games when he was quarterback. Look who, you know, Bryce Young had to throw to last year and that, and Alabama still didn't beat, uh, you know, didn't beat Georgia in that game because look at what was on Georgia's front line. They had four, they had three off or three defensive linemen drafted in the first round, I believe it was. And the, potentially the best one of the mix, and that's including the first overall pick, and the best one of the mix, Jalen Carter, wasn't even eligible to be drafted. So uh, he could potentially be even better than any of those guys were. So that's the kind of depth and that's the kind of defense that you need to have to be in the college football playoff. So I don't think USC is quite ready for that spotlight yet, but should they not strive for that? No, that's not what I'm saying. So I wanted to address that because I know a lot of people got upset um, and, and, and took it in different ways. And, you know, some people are making it out to say that all the other Pac-12 teams are ready for the spotlight. No, I think Oregon showed that in the first week. I think UCLA routinely shows it when they just are not as good as they should be at this point. Um, the fact that they don't recruit as well as they should. Now they went and mined the transfer portal and did really well. And I think it's going to be a really challenging matchup for USC this week. But it's a disappointment, I think, when you look at UCLA and where they probably should be in year five under Chip Kelly. If you're going to pay a coach that much, you expect him to you know, have the results by year five for sure. Look at what Lincoln Riley's done in year one. So I was not saying that USC shouldn't search for the college football playoff. I was saying I don't think they're ready for that spotlight just yet. Maybe next year we'll see what they can do in the transfer portal, especially people want to play with a talisman. 
And USC has a talisman in Caleb Williams. He's a guy that everyone gravitates towards. He's a guy that you want to play with. If you're a wide receiver, I don't know, and you have one season left and you're one of the best in the country, why would you not want to play with Caleb Williams versus maybe anybody else in the country? Maybe Drake May. Maybe, you know, there's a couple other guys out there. But Caleb Williams is one of those guys, one of the five guys in the country that you would want to play for if you had your choice. So uh, we'll see what USC does in the offseason as well. But I think they'll they'll add a lot more pieces this offseason, and next season they'll be primed even more. But you gotta they got specific areas where they'll have to, to fill in some holes, and we'll see how well they do that. But I think they'll be much more ready next year. So if they can get in the college football playoff, take their take their you know take their lashes. Uh, you know, hopefully, you know, they upset somebody. That'd be great. Be more fun to cover a national championship game than just a Rose Bowl. And I love the Rose Bowl, like I said. But if they don't, can they learn from it? Does that become the workout message all off season? all those workouts? That becomes the, the one unified message, those type things. That's what you hope for this USC team going forward. But are they ready for that playoff spotlight yet? I don't think so. Well, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Hurt on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle podcast family. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling, saying thank you to everyone who submitted a question and to everyone for taking the time to listen. Please like, share, subscribe, all that type of stuff. Leave us a review on your podcast listening platform, your favorite one, whichever it is. And I hope you can join us for the next episode of the Hurt on the Sidelines podcast. This is your boy, Shotgun. Peace. <laughs>